online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Great to have your company this afternoon. Coming up on the Country Hour today, it's all hands on deck for producers of sparkling wine. Warm weather triggers the earliest ever start to vintage for many Tasmanian vineyards. So we started picking fruit down our East Coast vineyard on Valentine's Day. So that's the earliest ever. Uh, I think it was the very first grapes picked in Tassie of this year. We'll call in to Joseph Cromie Wines in the Tamar Valley shortly to check out the crop. And how can farmers address increased scrutiny on their emissions? It is going to impact things like contracts and legal agreements and what product you essentially supply and consign to uh, whoever you're selling to. You know, in some cases, even get could affect legal advice, for example. Those stories coming up along with the latest developments in controlling nasty weeds along the state's coastline. 0438 922 936 is the number to text in at any time across uh, the program today between now and one. But first, we'll start with the red meat industry because it's questioning the inclusion of sustainability and environmental impacts in the Australian Dietary Guidelines Review. Megan Hughes has this story. Ten years after they were published, Australia's dietary guidelines are up for review. The National Health and Medical Research Council is the statutory body undertaking the review into the guidelines about what Australians should eat to meet nutritional requirements. But the red meat industry is questioning why environmental impacts, accessibility and food affordability are being included as considerations. Some farmers, like Australian Beef Sustainability Framework Chairman Mark Davey, want more information about how sustainability will be measured. I think the bigger concern is in the 2013 guidelines, um, they had a quite a large appendix, Appendix G, which covered off on sustainability. And the key issues around sustainability and reducing, I guess, waste are firstly things like you know, overconsumption, or things like food waste. So if food waste was a, a country, its emissions would be the third largest in the world after America and China. And it also talked about the complexities of sustainability, the difficulty in measuring it, the variability across you know, products within one supply chain. Um, and now for some reason, the next round has decided to not take its own device and, and to change the... And what this is is a, is a, a moving focus and a broadening of focus away from that core role of nutritional guidelines and into other areas. Um, and, and we think the role of the guidelines should be to firstly focus on nutrition. The reason the National Health and Medical Research Council is including sustainability is it identified a number of priority areas for research during its background work preparing for the review. This includes dietary patterns, processed foods, nutrition needs at different times of life, protein-rich foods and sustainable diets, which it defined as accessible, affordable and equitable with low environmental impacts. The guidelines are primarily used by health professionals, policy makers, food retailers and manufacturers. They seek to provide evidence-based information on the types and amounts of foods, food groups and dietary patterns to promote health and to reduce the risk of diet-related conditions. A council spokesperson said applications were currently open for people to join the working group that would advise the Committee on Sustainability. 
and that farmers and farming organisations have an important role to play, particularly given their knowledge of food production. But John McKillop, the independent chair of the Red Meat Advisory Council, which represents producers and advises on policy, said the Dietary Committee should not give environmental advice. Here they're now suddenly going to turn around and say, well, in addition to that, you need to consider the environmental um, footprint of your of the food you're eating and you know they're simply not qualified to do that you might as well you know have the bureau of meteorology start issuing nutritional guidelines along with the weather forecast it's just not within their remit to do it on its website the council said the expert committee is appointed based on their expertise in areas like evidence translation epidemiology research methodology food and health relationships and nutrition communication it said sustainability was intended to be addressed by a separate process to the other research priorities the review is a multi-year process it started in 2020 and the updated guidelines are expected to be released in 2026. Once the evidence is analysed, draft guidelines will be written and released for public consultation, followed by an independent expert review before they are made official. The council spokesperson said all stakeholders, including farmers and farming organisations, will have the opportunity to comment on the draft guidelines. The red meat industry has been working on reducing its carbon emissions and improving its sustainable outcomes. A target was set for the industry to be carbon neutral by 2030. Mr Davey wants work like this to be acknowledged in this review. We have a food system. We have an interrelated network. So there are cattle in feedlots that eat the excess biscuits that would be thrown out of out of food factories. We cycle things like the byproducts of the wine industry through cattle. It's full of core micronutrients that we can upcycle back into a food product to ensure it goes into nutrition. Um, otherwise, there's a huge amount of, of waste because it is a, it's an interrelated system. And then how is it going to weigh up things like co-benefits, things like biodiversity being supported by a food production system, regional communities being supported by certain food products because they've got a greater economic multiplier? Because ESG you know, occurs across a broad spectrum of, of items. Sustainability is very broad. The council spokesperson said that evidence farmers and farming organisations were working on sustainability and the role of the industry in the broader community would be included in the review. Expressions of interest to join the sustainability working group to advise on the guidelines are open until March 5th. That report from Megan Hughes. Well, as the focus on carbon emissions from farms intensifies, how should farmers be planning for the future? And what sustainability assurances are customers going to demand of farmers, just like we heard in the previous story? Well, consultant Robert Poole from CVA Australia says farmers need to prepare for increased scrutiny. I suppose my message was that the the industry and individuals like start prepping for that. I think that that's logical. New, the New Zealand industry, agricultural industry, is already going to full reporting. Um, there'll be parts of us, the Australian sector that the customers and will will start asking for that as well. So I don't want people to you know panic about how soon that has to be done. In fact, I said we've got time. We need to do the R and D that's in behind. Uh, you know, transport fuels and soils and there's a lot of work to be done. So start planning, have a really logical, well-planned um, sector plan and, uh, you know, start the work towards what is an inevitable change of the entire economy, not just agriculture, but all the parts of the economy, energy, construction, 
waste management, etc. There is a lot of focus on emissions calculators and there are a few different products on the market. You had some interesting thoughts on those? Yeah, they're, no, they're, to- they're totally fine and I think, you know, I come out of the dairy sector as well and we- we've been working on nutrient calculators and, and, and so that ma- mass balance approach to, you know, farm nutrient management and now farm emissions, that, that's, a solid, that's a solid approach. We need to have that but I guess my message is, is reporting is one thing Actually, the way the whole system works, the way we participate in what people call the carbon economy, I actually don't think we've got that right yet. I think that needs a lot of rethinking because certain parts of it, like ACUs, I'm not sure how well they apply to agriculture. So I'm kind of... My hypothesis is we do need to perhaps rethink how agriculture works in uh, with you know, the emissions market, the carbon market, etc., and you also spoke about um, baselines and, and recognition of, of farmers already doing best practice in, in reducing emissions and sequestering carbon? Yeah, so, so that was a sort of a case in point, I guess, that in certain soils, farmers already have really high organic carbon. Um, I've been well-schooled in this by, by, by um, you know, certain mentors of mine. So they're not going to necessarily be able to participate easily in carbon credits because their soils are already at high organic carbon, high organic matter and high carbon content. So we just need to think about how to reward everyone who's done all the work already, where they've got a very sustainable system already, whether that's in soil carbon or river management or animal welfare and... Yeah, I'm just not sure about thinking it purely as a emissions calculators and carbon credits is the right model. I think there's something probably a better way to do it. Biofuels, you, you spoke about them and you think that's going to be a, a huge growth market in Australia? Yeah, I was talking about going to some, some of the global conferences that I get to attend and, you know, b- the big companies like Maersk, the shipping company, and obviously the Australian, you know, the airlines and the rail, one of the farmers asked about rail freight. You know, all of the, those transport sectors very integrated into the grains industry. So, you know, I think it's a huge issue for the grains industry. And, of course, if they are going to move to biofuels, someone's got to grow the raw materials for that. That's not going to come out of waste oils and stuff. That has to come out of agriculture. So it's a huge... I think it's going to be a massive part of the grains industry. We need to do it in a way where it doesn't affect grains available for the, for the food supply chain. So it's going to be about new farm systems productivity and maybe particularly northern Australia. You know, we've probably got more stable or mature supply chains down here, but having worked up in northern Australia, I think there's some really exciting opportunities up there. Andrew Wiedemann also spoke this morning and his advice around uh, things like carbon credits and entering deals to, to reduce your, your emissions or on behalf of others, for example, his advice was don't sign anything at this stage. What would you say about that? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But, you know, I think um, some of the reviews I've done in this space, you know, people forget it is going to impact things like contracts and legal agreements and what product you essentially supply and consign to uh, whoever you're selling to so one of the things farmers will need to do is kind of understand what they're doing you know in some cases even get you know that it will it could affect legal advice for example so carbon credits are a classic example of that in terms of if someone wants to buy them off you and that kind of thing what actually are your legal rights what are your legal risks so it's a new form of business it hasn't really formed up yet so Andrew's probably right just get good advice before you do anything in this space.
Uh, just finally and perhaps hard to comment generally because it, it varies from farm to farm and commodity to commodity but in general the, the focus the, the intense focus on emissions reduction and carbon sequestration is it a good thing or is it a bad thing for farmers i guess it's a, it's it's moved into our reality so i don't look at it like that anymore i think i just look at it as okay how do we actually operationalize it how do we do the good good r&d uh, how do we potentially even make money out of it? I don't look at it philosophically anymore. I just look at it through a lens of R&D, data, and, and doing it in a way where it's... A, I think it's always true with anything. It's not just agriculture, but all business. Do it in a way where it's simple. It integrates into what we do already. I kind of used the example today of like product quality. and you know. So we should think of it like in a systematic way and just make it part of our, our future and, and do that over the next sort of 5, 10, 20 years. And is it just a reality that, that you have to embrace? You've got no choice? I think so, because our, our customers and our gl- global markets are going to need it anyway. So I think, I think it is a reality, and we're better to kind of plan it systematically like that. We do have time. Most of the company CEOs are still talking about 2050 targets. I guess at some point we'll have more interim targets. And if one of our key markets did turn around and, and demand something new quite soon, we at least should be ready. That was Robert Poole, partner at CVA Australia, speaking with Angus Verley about preparing for increased scrutiny when it comes to carbon emissions in agriculture. Up next, I'll take you to a vineyard where grape harvest is in full swing. Nightlife with Phil Clark. Hello, Rose. Hello, Phil. I just think, should I ring in? Because jeepers, the questions get harder and harder. They you do. Know, it's funny about hard questions, isn't it? They're always easy if you know the answers, and if you don't know the answers, they're hard. My friends say, Rosie, why do you ring up? And I go, I'm having a go. Yeah. And I get to talk to Phil, and it makes me exactly. happy at the exactly. end of the day. Nightlife, Monday to Thursday with Philip Clark. I can't think of two better reasons for having a crack, Rose. Exactly. <laughs> On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It's the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Where it's 20 past 12. Well, wine grape harvest is underway across the state and for some vineyards, it's the earliest start to vintage ever. Joseph Cromie Wines is a pretty large player in the industry and is expanding its production area beyond the Tamar to include the East Coast and Coal River Valley. I caught up with viticulturalist Kelly Graham at Cromie's Winery at Relbia on the outskirts of Launceston. So the winery has already started, our vintage, so this is the earliest vintage uh, for us here at Cromie this year. So we started picking fruit down at East Coast Vineyard on Valentine's Day. Uh, so that's the earliest ever. Uh, I think it was the very first grapes picked in Tassie of this year. So for Cromies, we started earlier than every other year. So it's warm. It's a warm year. And I don't think we're alone. I think everyone else is seeing exactly the same thing as well. So fruit's coming in early. There's lots of it. People are already sensing that their yields are bigger than what they predicted. So no different here. We're doing exactly the same. So big year. Is it solely the warm weather that's brought this fruit on early? 
I think so, yeah, absolutely. We had a warm spring for us. So a warm spring means uh, a good bunch and fruit set, so the flowering um, sets properly, so there's no delay in flowering. The bunch sizes set really well, so it's a combination of beautiful spring weather to set flowers and then this beautiful summer weather that's just continued all the way through for us here, and especially... I can't quote you for all the regions of Tassie, but here in the Lower Tamar, it's definitely had an effect for sure. Absolutely. And will these be mechanically harvested? Uh, they will be, absolutely. So most of Joseph Cromie is mechanically harvested. So I think we're only picking somewhere between seven to ten tonnes or hand pick this year for uh, Oki, the winemaker, just wants some super premium. So he'll use that predominantly Pinot Noir and some of our uh, Chardonnay. Um, the rest will be all mechanically harvested. So, with a, a vineyard this size and the the area that you have, you you couldn't do it without those machines. Oh, not not really. No, like for hand picking, a it's super expensive. It costs a ridiculous amount of money to hand pick fruit. So, in comparison, I think it's well, last year we picked. I think it was about nine thousand dollars a hectare for hand picking, compared to something like I don't know less than twelve hundred dollars for machine harvesting so you can't compare the cost differences and our wine house style allows us to be able to hand, uh, to machine pick rather than hand pick as well so it's a winemaker slash picking preference but also has an economic difference as well. Up on the hill the nets are off yes. I'm presuming that's where you're going to be harvesting We're next. harvesting next quite a significant amount of tonnes as well I can't tell you exactly off the top of my head what they are but uh, if you think 30 30 tonnes per block we're picking 10 blocks so there's 300 tonnes of fruit coming in in a very short amount of time. Sparkling you've got to get the sugars right to, to hit the sweet spot I yeah. suppose. Um, <laughs> yep. What do you measure for in the labs back oh, in the okay, winery? Cool. With sparkling fruit it's not so much about having sugar or flavour ripeness it's more about the combination of the levels of acid and the level of sugar um, it's, it's more about the acids for sparkling fruit production. So uh, we get to a Beaumet level, which is a French term for sugar level. So it gets to 10 and a half, 11 Beaumet, which is actually spot on. And the acids will be somewhere between 10 and 14 grams of acid per litre, I suppose it is. That, that's the sweet spot for sparkling. It's not necessarily about just being sugar. and We're not after flavour, we're not after colour. It's about the balance between acids and sugars. Yeah. And then everything else is made into magic uh, back in the winery. That's what they say, yes. But being a viticulturalist, it all happens in the vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the winemakers think it's all their magic. It happens here first. <laughs> Uh, where do you see growth uh, in in varieties and, and production here at Chromies? Uh, here at Chromies, we're pretty much planted to the boundary, so um, there's not a lot of room for us to plant anymore. But as part of the um, Joseph Chromie group, we're looking at vineyards um, and other regions of Tassie. So we're leasing a vineyard down the east coast, which gives us that sort of diversity of east coast fruit. We've also bought a vineyard down in the Coal River Valley, so that gives us that beautiful fruit from the Coal River as well. So we're diversifying outside our region, so to give us... It's an insurance policy? An insurance policy, absolutely. So um, if something happens here at Relbia, we still have a fruit supply coming from either the East Coast or the Coal River and vice versa. If one of those don't work out, then Relbia can pick up the stack if it's that sort of season because those regions are so very different. I've learnt that the hard way this year that I can't manage the East Coast the same as I can manage Relbia and vice versa with the, the Coal River. So they are very different. The fruit styles are very different between the regions as well. So 
this being our first year with those two extra vineyards, we're still trying to get our head around, well, what does it mean for us? What are the fruit styles like? And the winemaker's going, will this make this variety, this product, or will it, we keep it in this sort of style? So it's a bit of a um, experiment for us this year, I suppose. It's a, it's a nice experiment to have, to have all this different fruit coming from different regions. So, yeah, see how we go this year. What else is in the mix here uh, at Relbia in terms of varietals? Uh, we have Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Riesling, uh, Sauvignon Blanc and also an Austrian variety called Weigelt which uh, Joe Cromie put in. I'm not quite sure how old it is but I think it's Austrian so being Czech um, it was similar to the homeland so that went in. It produces very very dark fruits so something different to have. So, Alright we've just crawled underneath one of the nets and Walking up one of these beautiful rows, what's mm-hmm. in here? Uh, this is Pinot Gris, so this will be Pinot Gris for Joseph Cromie Pinot Gris label. It is different to Sav Blanc, so it's not as uh, like a fruit bomb, some people call Sav Blanc. It's more delicate, um, it can be either made into a Grigio style, so lightweight, easy drinking, or a more Gris style, which has more, more body and more colour. So it depends on winemaking preference, I suppose, and the house style of what you can use Pinot Gris for. How far off are these getting picked? These are about three to four weeks away, probably even less now, so not far. So what's it like to sink your teeth into a, a brand new vineyard after being at another one for so long? It's a tricky one. I mean, this was a, I was lucky this, this vineyard had already been established, so it's, had, it's been here since 1998, I believe the first plantings were, so I'm just the new steward of something that's been planted a very long time ago. So we've had lots of staff changes, we now belong to a large corporate, so there are different, you know, different quirks I suppose you could say but it's been great this vineyard is an awesome vineyard it grows beautiful fruit it crops well and it's been known for its high cropping capacity for a very long time so we have to control that a little bit to give us some um, super premium a-grade fruit through that winery so that's our aim. Kelly Graham is the viticulture manager for Joseph Cromie at Relbia. News headlines and the weather forecast from the bureau just around the corner and later in the program Germany becomes the latest country to legalise cannabis. What will it mean for exporters of CBD? We'll find out in about 20 minutes from now. Well, there's some relief for a number of communities in the state's central highlands with several bushfires downgraded to an advice level. But across in Victoria, though, it's recovery mode as Blaze Aid volunteers are preparing to deploy after a surge in wild weather and fires left a trail of damage across farms. CEO Melissa Jones says the organisation is setting up base camps across the state. We've had quite a few calls come in asking for assistance from properties that are, you know, sort of around the five acres all the way up to larger farms. And what I've heard is that there's the storm sort of ripped through and threw trees around like pencils everywhere. Lots of damage to fence lines and stock containment is definitely an issue. Do you know yet where you would be heading to or how you might set that up? 
Uh, look, we I've had one conversation with council and in that conversation I said, find us a base camp and we'll come. We'll be there with bells on and uh, get started and help these people out. Um, but uh, heard nothing else um, other than that initial conversation. So what we really are after, I'm, I'm really keen to get moving um, and that is just a place where we can go, usually an oval or, a, you know, sort of sports grounds that has a kitchen and dining dining facility because we do feed our volunteers all their meals um, and we also need amenities such as showers and toilets because obviously after um, being out in the field all day, our volunteers uh, need to come in and clean up and the like. So um, we try and make our volunteers as, as comfortable and as cared for as possible and those are sort of the essentials. I know Yinar is very close to Ground Zero there at Murbury North and we have stayed in the Yinar cricket grounds before, so that might be an option, although I do believe it's in another council area. The storms that went through South Gippsland aren't the only uh, weather-related disasters that are facing the state at the moment. There's been fires and floods and, and all sorts of disasters over the past few months. How are your resources looking like at the moment? Are you are you hunting for volunteers? Absolutely. So we've got a base camp uh, that's just about to be set up in Halls Gap. The Pomonal Fire uh, and Dadswell Bridge fires over there we will be responding to and also currently in discussions um, to set up near Beaufort uh, when it's safe as well. Um, We have uh, bases in Bort at the moment and also Gornong, which is close to Bendigo, responding to floods uh, that happened earlier on in the year. So yes, we, as far as resources go with tools and equipment, we're fine with, but it's the volunteers that, that really uh, drive our base camps and, and get the work done quickly as possible so that landowners can get back on track and, and um, start their farming again. Coming into late February, early March, is this the time of year that you would normally be this busy or is this unusual? Um, over the last couple of years, it's sort of started to peter out by uh, March, but it's a very unusual year. We, we really were expecting to have fires um, early on and no flooding. Uh, and <laughs> here we go in January with ma- major floods around Victoria and, and the like, and then uh, smashed again with fires. So I think that the season is sort of just beginning now um, as far as fires go and I'm expecting more to come in the next month or so. So we're very, very busy um, but we can handle it. We're right to go and uh, we just need the volunteers to come and support. You don't need to know about fencing to help. Um, you can learn on the job. If you can't come out and volunteer, then perhaps you can support Blaze Aid by donating funds to keep our camps going. That's Melissa Jones, Chief Executive at the Disaster Recovery Organisation Blaze Aid, speaking there with Fiona Broom. And I know over the years a lot of Tasmanians have given up their time to help um, with Blaze Aid's efforts as well. Later in the second half of the program, an invasive plant that's infested Tasmania's coastlines for years could have met its match. The CSIRO has deployed a fungus to control sea spurge. So we'll look at those trials in a tick and also how infrared technology could become an important weapon to control other weeds in the face of increasing herbicide resistance. But before those stories, we need to find out what's happening with our weather this afternoon. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. Luke, any rain to speak of? 
Good morning. Uh, no, not good morning. Good, good afternoon, Larissa. Good morning in Brisbane, if, if I was there. But I'm not <laughs> oh, don't we wish. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice. Well, actually, having said that, it's quite pleasant out there at the moment. Most uh, centres are hovering around 20 to 22 degrees at the moment. There hasn't been any significant rain the last couple of hours, but there are a few little uh, observations of one millimetre or so in some elevated parts of the northwest. So I do have one rainfall report of five millimetres at Zeehan to 9am today, but that seems a bit sus because it's sort of in isolation. So we'll investigate that one before going any further. But the remainder of today, essentially just more of the same. Warm, maybe a few light showers into the northwest, but otherwise a mostly fine day. Temperatures reaching the, uh, the mid-20s at most and winds coming from the northeast. We're driving a little bit of smoke from the uh, Brady's Lake fire complex near Taralea into the southeast this morning and it's likely we'll see something similar tomorrow. Yeah, so the story tomorrow, any rain on the way or combined with some heat, it's a bit of a weird one. Yeah, it is. It is a weird one tomorrow, actually. So tomorrow will be hotter than today, um, but more in the way of mid-level cloud cover. We'll probably have some light spits throughout tomorrow in most areas from some mid-level cloud, but most of it should evaporate before reaching the ground. Uh, Tomorrow evening, we'll see a trough arrive from the west, bringing with it the chance of some mid-level thunderstorms, which is not great news because they don't look to be producing that much in the way of rainfall. They'll produce some, but not enough to extinguish the fires that are already uh, ongoing. And in combination with that, if we do get some thunderstorms, there could be some reasonable gusts of wind as well, sort of in the range of 80 to 100 kilometres per hour at some elevated sites. So uh, fire agencies are obviously very interested in the period tomorrow evening uh, to Thursday morning. Beyond that, Thursday onwards, we're just in a period of westerlies again, so a few showers coming into the west, but unfortunately dry conditions expected elsewhere for yet another week. And of course, we don't want uh, the, the dry lightning either. No, no, that's that's the thing. So it's a combination of dry landscape already. It's going to be a warm period uh, overnight with lightning without necessarily much rain and potential wind gusts to make things even more complicated. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting night, I think, for, for fire agencies in Tas. What's happening with coastal waters today? All right, much much simpler, less weird. North to northeasterly, 10 to 20 knots, more variable in the southwest today, reaching 20 to 30 knots about the lower east coast for a period this afternoon. Tomorrow, north to northeasterly, 10 to 20 knots, increasing to 20 to 30 knots in the far northwest and the east in the afternoon and the far northeast in the evening, gradually becoming north to northwesterly, 10 to 20 knots in the west late. That's behind that little trough that'll bring the thunderstorms. The swell in the west and south, the southwesterly, 2 to 3 metres, decaying a little bit tomorrow. We'll get a northeasterly or an east to northeasterly building to one to one and a half metres uh, coming into the south tomorrow as well. Through Bass Strait, a westerly below one metre today and tomorrow with a northeasterly uh, building to one metre tomorrow. And the east coast has got a southerly to around one metre, a little bit below one metre tomorrow and a northeasterly building to one to two metres tomorrow as well. Um, and significant wave height of 2.2 metres at Cape Sorrel at the moment. Any warnings we need to be across? Just some coastal wind warnings. So today, a strong wind warning for the lower east coast. Tomorrow, all coastal waters have a strong wind warning apart from the southwest coast and uh, the central north coast for the moment. Too easy. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Larissa. Luke Johnston there at the Weather Bureau. Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
about 22 to 1 on the Country Hour. Well, good news in a never-ending fight against sea spurge. It's an invasive plant that has infested Tasmania's coastlines for decades. In some areas, the weed is so dense it outcompetes native dune flora and threatens nesting sites for native shorebirds and little penguins. Last year, the CSIRO released a fungus in certain areas as part of a trial to see if the weed could be controlled. Scientists now say the fungus has established and is beginning to spread. Meg Powell spoke to senior research scientist at the CSIRO, Gavin Hunter. Yes, so we did um, initial releases of the agents started in October 2021 and we've been going back since then um, kind of twice a year. What we found is that the agent has now established at those nine monitoring sites um, and it is causing uh, the required, the expected disease symptoms on sea spurge and it's starting to have an impact on the the cover and the health of sea spurge. Although it's um, an initial impact, we expect that impact will increase over the coming years because the project's only been running for about two or three years. We've also found that the agent has naturally dispersed outside of the original site where we released it. Sometimes that dispersion has only been a few metres, but in other sites it's actually been several hundred metres, up to 250 metres at one site in in Tasmania. Um, So we're confident that the agent's now established at some of those sites in in an Australian context on sea spurge that started to naturally disperse and that it's having um, an initial impact on some of those sea spurge um, infestations where it's been released. Will what will happen with this is is it possible to eradicate this weed or is it just going to be sort of a bit more controlled? Yes, yeah, so um, biocontrol is never or classical biocontrol is never a, a silver bullet. So it won't um, wipe out sea spurge, but what it does offer is a landscape scale, sustainable, environmentally friendly option to hopefully decrease the population levels of sea spurge. I think it's also important to note that a lot of the a lot of these sea spurge infestations that occur are actually in really remote areas along the coastline. They can't always be um, easily accessed by um, weed managers or land managers to either spray them with herbicide or for manual removal. Um, and that's potentially where a biocontrol agent can be um, helpful because a biocontrol agent spreads naturally. Um, over time, it'll um, move to these areas that are really rural. It's really important to um, highlight the role of community organisations and private individuals that have come on board and partnered with CSIRO in terms of receiving the agent from us and releasing the agent on seasbirds infestations close to them. Because without the community, we wouldn't have been we wouldn't have been able to to get the agent out to as many places um, as we have. So their, their participation in this project has been absolutely priceless. John Marsden Smedley is one of those volunteers and he reckons the team he built nearly 20 years ago has put in more than 8,500 days of work to fight the weed. We've been working to reduce the problem of sea spurge, particularly in the area between Strawn and Cockle Creek in western and southern Tasmania. And I'm Gabby Whitworth. I volunteer with Sprats as well and I've been involved for 10 plus years. It sounds like the the tests have been very promising so far. Will this uh, product make much of a difference in 
the future for a volunteer group like yours? It has the potential to be highly advantageous to us. We're still in the early stages of getting it going. A lot of the sites that in northern Tasmania are just too big to actually hand weed or spray. They're just too massive. And what this has the potential to do is, at the very, very least, reduce sea spurge to being just another minor weed and no longer being an ecosystem-transforming weed. Or in other areas, it can get the sea spurge down to levels that become hand-weedable. This must be extremely exciting news for people such as yourselves who have watched over years this weed really transform landscapes. It's really gratifying to see all the shore nesting birds that are hanging on in those areas. But we're kind of, it's not that we're fighting a losing battle, but we just, we'd have to keep going forever <laughs> if we don't do something about these massive infestations to the north. Yes, and it really is a light at the end of the tunnel for us if it ends up um, achieving its potential, which we really hope it will. Volunteer Sea Spurge Fighter John Marsden Smedley. You also heard from volunteer Gabby Whitworth and senior CSIRO researcher Gavin Hunter. And Mr Marsden Smedley said he'd be looking to run a statewide Sea Spurge strategy meeting in the second half of the year after the CSIRO releases its final results. Well, staying with innovations in weed control but using tech... The USA is leading the way in a lot of this research and Australian weed researcher Michael Walsh spent six months there on a scholarship to see it in action. He told Selena Green about what he learnt about how blue light and infrared wavelengths could be a game changer in this space. It works, but there's not a lot of understanding of why it works. Well, at least the, uh, the start-up company that's developing is not really divulging what the, the mechanisms behind it are. So the the, the story is that this startup company in Ohio called Global Neighbor, um, they developed this tech which is a combination of light at the, in the blue wavelength, uh, high intensity, so 30 times the intensity of uh, blue light in sunlight spectrum. It combined with mid-wave infrared heating and in combination these two acts to uh, both control weed seedlings as well as to control weed seeds, which is really interesting. There's not a lot of public knowledge about how blue light or even the mid-wave infrared heating act to um, to kill plants. So there's, a, there's some research that needs to be done in that space for sure. Now, you also um, had an opportunity to see some research in electrical weeding. How does this work? Essentially, the um, systems that are commercially available are high-voltage systems and they have a positive probe and a negative probe and essentially it's trying to put a weed in the middle of a a big charge that is, has a, a weed control effect. So the, the positive probe comes in contact with the weed, high voltage passes through the, the weed back to the negative probe and in the process there's what they call resistive heating, so resistance to that passage of the charge and that resistive, resistance heating causes the, well, essentially the cell contents to, to boil and, and cell to structure. What about weed recognition technologies? How are they being utilised? Globally, there is a lot of activity in this area because of the, the great opportunity that there is for growers from using the, this technology. So the challenge, of course, is accuracy and also dealing with the, the complexity of, of cropping systems. So yeah, we talk about developing recognition algorithms. Well, you, you pretty much need a, a specific algorithm for each 
situation, each crop weed combination. And, and that means a lot of background effort in um, building databases of weed images in cropping systems, as well as the, the subsequent application of the technology at, at field scale. Uh, so in the US, the, the work that I saw was very much focused on building a, a really large database of the images of weeds that they have in their cropping system. So very much focusing on weeds in grain systems. And so the idea is with that large database, it would be publicly accessible and essentially anybody who's interested in developing a recognition algorithm can access that data to, to, to build their own recognition capability. What else did you see that uh, got you pretty excited? So there was uh, a lot of more chemical-based stuff, I guess. So following on from the weed recognition capability was microjet's brain. Some of the tech that was being looked at was like inkjet printer heads that were being used for printing labels on cardboard boxes. So an array of, of inkjets, that 32 jets that could be quickly controlled and capable of delivering micro amounts of chemical treatments, so microliters, one to six microliters, which is very, very low volumes and with recognition capability can be applied very precisely to weed plants, weed plant parts to really improve the accuracy, but also try and achieve some of these goals of reducing the amount of herbicide that we're, we're putting out there in our, in our production systems. How far down the track, I imagine that uh, varies from, from each technology, but uh, are we talking about technologies here that are pretty close to you know, becoming accessible and, and utilised in the field? Um, yes, yeah, I mean, the electrical weeding stuff is very, very close. It, it's commercially available in the US and Europe. The global neighbour technologies, the weed array system is, is available in the US and Europe as a handheld home garden system. Um, the weed seed destroyer that they're developing is potentially close in the US. Um, they've had a couple of seasons of testing a commercial scale rig. The microjet um, spray application tech is probably a little bit further off. It needs a little bit more development, but uh, yeah, I guess the challenge is that we need like a company or a startup to take these, these te- this sort of tech on board and run with it to get it into the commercial space. And, and once it is, I mean, how applicable do you see all of this being to to Australia? They'll all have opportunities in different areas. The, uh, the weed seed destroyer obviously is for grain production systems, electrical weeding, I think may be more valuable in the smaller scale horticulture type areas. The microjet uh, spray uh, applications probably similarly on small scale systems for a start, but it, it is potentially scalable. So that yeah, a lot of them will potentially have an entry level at the smaller scale, but uh, hopefully can be extrapolated to, to grain production systems. Australian weed researcher Michael Walsh speaking with Selena Green. Up next, market opportunities for medicinal cannabis exporters. With the ABC Listen app, you can take ABC Radio anywhere. From the car to the cafe, from the couch to the creek, even places that don't start with a C. Download the free ABC Listen app today. Well, Germany is legalising cannabis following in the footsteps of Canada and the Netherlands, which made cannabis legal through cafes in 1976. 
Germany is the largest CBD market in Europe and this decision could trigger relaxation of laws in other countries as well. Paul Long is the CEO of Little Green Pharma. It's a company in Western Australia which has a big production facility in Denmark near the German border, producing dried flowers, among other products used in medicinal cannabis. David Clawton asked him what's changed in Germany. Yeah, so late on Friday afternoon, the uh, the German lower house actually voted to um, legalise cannabis. Um, so that was removing what what basically happens is it will remove um, cannabis from the narcotics list from April one. So so not far away, but it it sort of, it represents probably one of the most significant changes we've seen in global cannabis since since probably Canada legalised back in two two thousand eighteen. And the Netherlands did it. Quite quite a long time ago, I remember travelling in in Holland and thinking, "Well, I could just walk into a cafe and, and order some cannabis." Yeah, that's right. I mean, the pathway has been has been a bit of a grey area in in the Netherlands, but certainly there's been access in a recreational setting there for a long time. Um, but yeah, Germany represents Germany. We think now will be the largest medical cannabis market in Europe. There's no doubt about that, and and probably well, it's actually probably the the, the largest federally legal cannabis market, full stop now globally. Obviously, the US is a big market, but it's still federally illegal. And, and obviously, Canada's been, been legalised for cannabis since 2018. So what will it mean for Germans? What will they be able to do that they couldn't do before? Yeah, good question. So basically, they've, um, they've established like a non-for-profit cannabis club. So you'll be able to join a, join a club. Um, and, and together grow cannabis, but we think that'll be relatively relatively limited. Um, there will, uh, German uh, residents will also be able to cultivate and a uh, small number of plants at home, um, and possession for personal use quantities will, will no longer be an issue for, for Germans. But So personal use for recreation, or are we talking about them making some oil and maybe turning it into a medicinal? No, right. no, for recreation. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's the that's what that's it's that's that's the big news. But but I guess you know the decision. The big thing is actually the decision to um, remove cannabis from the, from the narcotics list. So so for for the medical pathway, which is where Little Green Pharma are one of the leaders, it will it'll do a whole heap of things around access. It will really ramp up volume. We think in 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 Germany and things like um, you know, easing of the rules around telehealth services and e scripts and direct delivery to patients and all those things that have kind of slowed the medical pathway down in Germany now will will open up with this change. And what will that mean, do you think, for uh, for your company? I mean, is that going to be a huge boost for, for what you do? Yeah, we certainly hope so. We we think, you know, most of the um, – we've, we've got a small team in, in Berlin which is giving us feedback, but the industry seems to – take the view there'll be a, a quantum shift in patient demand, mainly because of that ease of access. So access will be far simpler, um, which, will, which should should sort of drive that demand and um, inside the country. It's, it's already been one of the fastest growing medical cannabis markets in the world, and we think this will, uh, will, will extrapolate that growth significantly this year and beyond. And more broadly for Australian producers or, or growers or, or pharmaceutical companies, do you think this will have an impact? Yeah, there's a number of Australian companies now exporting to Germany. So we were we were one of the first to send product in there many years ago now. But yes, certainly there's a number of of producers here in Australia that are selling into that market. So it should be, you know, we think it'll prove to be a positive thing for for our industry here in Australia as well. And what about regulations in Australia? Um, do you think that that might? I mean, there's a sense, isn't there, that this could change things in Europe that others might follow there? What about here in Australia? 
Yeah, look, there certainly is a sense that um, that in Europe this will begin to um, change what's happening over there. In Australia, look, we we think that um, the medical pathway is working. You know, for us at Little Green Farmer, that's absolutely our focus. Uh, we did we did see in the New Zealand market, I think it might have been last year or the year before, but there was a referendum on this topic to legalise recreational cannabis, and and it got voted uh, voted down fifty one percent to forty nine. Um, so that's close. We think. It is very close, very close. So inevitably, I guess what the regulators are really looking at is this product safe? Um, can can a framework be set up to to manage um, how this product would be sold in the market in a recreational sense? What we see in Australia in the medical pathways is is exponential growth. We've probably got four to five percent of Australians now with a medical cannabis script, and the price of the product is basically on par. With, uh, with what you would typically see in the black market. So if you look at some of those pointers in the market, it, it feels, and, and as the, the globe begins to open up and legalise, it does, you know, you can draw a line between a, a time where you think there may be um, some further regulatory change in Australia, but, you know, our focus here is very much in the medical space. Paul Long is the CEO of the Little Green Pharma company based in WA, and I wonder what this decision means for Tasmanian companies exploring export opportunities for their CBD. Production is certainly growing at facilities across the state. Well, finally, let's head to the top end. And on a farm near Darwin in the Northern Territory, there's a family trialling a bright yellow fruit called Langsat. It hails from Southeast Asia and has a sweet flavour with a hint of citrus. There aren't many of these trees in Australia, but grower Han Shang Sia says they're so delicious. His family has planted 100 trees with hopes of commercial production in the coming years. He shared some fruit with Matt Bran. Uh, you're looking at Langsat. It's, it's a crop that we've, we're trialling here that we've been trying for a few years. We're, we're still trying to work out a, a good way to grow it in this, this subtropical kind of climate versus where they originally are from. So for those listening who have never heard of Lang Sat, how would you describe the fruit? It looks like um, grapes attached to trunks, but instead of the colour of a coloured grape of red or, or green, it's actually golden and yellow. Um, it's probably as big as, uh, just a little bit larger than a, a quail egg. Um, and it's, uh, the texture is, a, it's like a little bit of, it, it, when you open it up, it looks like um, a, it has little citrus segments. And it tastes kind of a little bit hint of citrus, a little bit of um, long kong, um, and a little bit of uh, long guns as well too. It's hard to describe until you try, but once you start, you you don't stop. Well, that's right. We were just standing here eating a few, and that's that's why that's why I thought <laughs> I'm going to get the microphone out and do a story here because yeah, Lang's Lang sats. And I before we came out, I actually asked your dad what are his favourite fruits to eat on the farm, mm-hmm. and he. He mentioned these and said, go and try a few. So how many trees have you got on the farm? We have probably close to about a, a hundred trees in, in different climates. So we have one out in the open like this, basically in a row. We have one growing under a couple of durian trees and a couple under some uh, jumping up trees, trying to kind of mimic that, that tropical environment and see how they're going. Um, those are looking a bit, little bit better, but those are still quite young and we don't know from there. So all the fruit that I can see, <laughs> what are you doing with it? What I'm doing right now, eating it. <laughs> for, for family and friends at the moment. Yeah. What, what's the hope? Do, do you feel like this can become a commercial crop for you? We hope. In a couple of years, we're just trying to work out the best way to proceed. Um, 
being like in in the Darwin region, when we're a lot more warmer here than the Queensland, so we're, we our fruit comes on a little bit earlier, so we can be able to reach onto that market earlier than, than the Queensland guys who can do it. Um, it is a quite a, in demand fruit, and when when it's on the market, it's easily ranging about thirty to forty dollars a kilo. Wow. And these are yeah, pretty easy to pick. There's little bunches, like little grapes, bag it up and put it on on, on set by refrigeration. And when you open them up, they've got that those beautiful sort of translucent segments that would remind people maybe of a lychee or a rambutan. Yeah, with, with a little bit of um, hints towards a like a like a uh, like an orange segment as well too. And so, has it been a good season for Langsats at your farm? This year it's been better than last year. Yep. We'll probably have probably about double the amount of crop, but uh, it's it's maybe looking at about 100 kilos. Of, yeah, and all for personal consumption over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Wow, wow. In five years' time, if everything went to plan, what does the Langsat operation look like? Uh, probably harvesting right about now, and hopefully we'll try to aim for the Chinese New Year market. And we're also trying to have maybe potentially maybe double to maybe triple the crop. And we got to work on the techniques to improving that uh, method of growing and production and just suit our climate here in the Northern Territory. Langsat grower Han Shang-si is speaking to Matt Bran. A Langsat, otherwise known as Long Kong or Duku.